would invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel, the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel and chapter 4 will be our text today. I'm not sure how much you are familiar with, how much you've heard about what uh, something that Todd mentioned right at the end of his prayer, what's being called the Asbury Revival. Asbury University is uh, an evangelical Methodist college in Kentucky, and it was on February 8th, so a week and a half ago, uh, that the, their chapel service uh, came to an end, but nobody left. Uh, a professor there described the scene Uh, He said some were reading and uh, reciting scripture, others were standing with arms raised, several were clustered in small groups praying together, a few were kneeling at the altar rail in the front of the auditorium, some were lying prostrate while others were talking to one another, their faces bright with joy. They were still worshiping when I left in the late afternoon and when I came back in the evening. They were still worshiping when I arrived early Thursday morning and by mid-morning, hundreds were filling the auditorium again. And over the days that have followed, students were coming in from uh, University of Kentucky, uh, Purdue, uh, other Christian colleges like uh, Illinois Wesleyan, Mount Vernon Nazarene. They were uh, gathering to be a part of what God is doing there. Now, as with everything these days, there are many voices from all directions in media, news media, social media, some celebrating, some questioning, critiquing, uh, and, and it's true. We should be discerning. We need to be discerning as to what constitutes true revival, but certainly I hope it is true that we all want, we want more of God's presence, God's power among us in a way that not only transforms us, but changes the world through the gospel. Now, in our, in our text today, we're going to see something, though, of a false revival. Uh, God's people seeking his presence and his power in the wrong way. And things don't go as they expect, as they intend. Instead of things getting better, things get worse. Instead of bringing victory, God seems to be defeated. The end. Wow, does that sound like a chapter you want to read? Sound like a sermon you want to hear? Well, it's, it, it's not a happy tale. And even though the story ends in utter despair, giving only negative Uh, only a negative picture, a bleak picture, it will help us, I think, to seek God in the way that we ought, in a way that truly honors Him. So, I've tried to prepare you for 1 Samuel chapter 4. I'm going to read it. I hope you'll follow along and see what God has for us today. Now, the first line of chapter 4 really connects more to the last chapter, but we had, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, "'Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines?' Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come in among us and save us from the power of our enemies. 
So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now, Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, "'Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son.'" But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Told you it was a pretty bleak story. There's more to come in in the next chapters. We'll get there, but here's what we need to look at today. Here's the sermon in a sentence. Seek God's presence, not for our success, but for His glory in our lives. Seek God's presence, not for our success, but for His glory to be in our lives. So let's start with the problem at the beginning of the passage. This is part one. Stunning defeat. And here's where we're going to get to. In our losses, 
we should look to God, but also examine ourselves. Now, where we've come so far in this this book, the first three chapters focused on Samuel, his birth, his growth, his calling to be a prophet that we saw last week, bringing God's word to God's people. Soon we'll see him usher in a new regime, Israel's first king. But these next three chapters, chapters four, five, six, are about the old regime dying, the failed leadership of Eli and his sons who were priests. Verse 18 says, Eli also administered justice in the land for 40 years. He was in a long line of uh, what the Bible calls the, the judges who ruled, who administered justice in the land. 40 years. This is a story of downfall. And it begins with a battle. Uh, that second part of verse 1, now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. And, you know, that probably raises questions like, where did that come from? Why are they fighting? Who started it? Uh, verse 2 seems to say that the Philistines struck first, but, but why, did they, why did they go out to battle? Had Israel provoked them? Why doesn't this book give us something more to go on? Well, this book does, the book as a whole. If you know the book of Judges, what uh, just prior to this in history, the Philistines had attacked and occupied and oppressed Israel on and off for generations. In fact, there were three different judges that God raised up to deliver Israel out of Philistine rule, out of Philistine oppression, Samson being the most famous one of those three. And, and see, see verse 9 here in the passage that we're looking at, First Samuel 4, verse 9. The Philistines say to each other, hey, you guys, we don't want to become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Ah, okay. That reveals a lot, right? Uh, They have enslaved Israel. They have oppressed uh, Israel uh, for quite some time. Now, everyone that's on the field of battle knows the outcome will have terrible consequences. It's not just about how many will die. It's about who will rule over whom. Thankfully, most of us have never had to live with that kind of threat. I know some of us were, are old enough that we, we were afraid of uh, you know, nuclear missiles coming over from the Soviet Union, but it's been since the mid-1800s since there have been battles fought on this soil that we live on. Uh, we don't quite understand and appreciate how that had to have felt. In this battle, though, when, when Israel is defeated and 4,000 men are killed, 4,000 homes left without a husband or a father or a son, 4,000 women and their children at risk of being captured and enslaved. The Bible is not as graphic as our movies today, but if you lived back then, you didn't need this book to paint the picture for you. You knew how, how horrifying it would be. And when horrific evil, when traumatizing pain comes upon God's people, they did exactly what we do. They asked, why? Why? Verse 3, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Now, isn't that interesting how they say that? Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Of course, the Philistines are the ones swinging the swords, But the Israelites asked why the Lord defeated them. See, the thing is, if you ask the why questions and you keep asking, well, why? Okay, like a toddler, why? Well, okay, but why? If you ask the why questions far enough, you, you go up the chain of command until you are wrestling with God. 
that, that's pretty much what the book of Job is all about. So, yeah, yeah, there's all this other stuff going on, but basically if you keep asking, but, but why and how, and it, you're going to end up wrestling with God. I was talking with someone earlier this week who's wrestling with the why questions. And that's, I mean, we all are, sooner or later, at one time or another. But I wonder if you've ever thought about the, uh, the fact that the why questions are actually harder for believers. See, so like ancient Israelites, we might think, well, I thought God was on our side. I thought God promised to bless us. Why do we even have enemies? Why do we fight these battles? Why do we suffer this defeat? Or, or Christians today, we look at our country, our culture, and we wonder, why are there Philistines out there? Why, why do we seem to be losing? God, are you not strong? Are you not good? When I gave my life to you, I thought there would be more, you know, victory. It's tempting to think we wouldn't have to struggle with the why questions if we believed in God. If we, or, or if we just gave up on God, maybe we wouldn't have to struggle with those questions. Maybe just God's not almighty. Maybe he's not perfectly good. Maybe he's just not there at all. But it's not easier for the unbeliever. It could, because frankly, it doesn't even make sense to ask why in the first place. If life is nothing but chance, if you're suffering, if you're in pain, it's, you know, it's just like, sorry, but, you know, there, there is no ultimate meaning or purpose beyond your pain right now. That's just how it is. Now, I know it's hard when we can't answer all the questions we have fully, but what if, what if the why moments come to stop us in our tracks exactly because God wants us to look to Him? He's not, no, no, he's not just smacking you on the head. To, hey, look at me. Pay attention. He's, he's not doing that exactly. It's more like letting us have a taste of life without him. And he says, do, do you want to see how bad it gets when you leave me out? But when it starts to get rough and you're like, hey, God. He's like, yes, that, that, okay, we can start there. Look at me. <laughs> look to me. And what's going on in this story, there's even more going on. Because in, we've already seen in the chapters in the, in, uh, earlier in 1 Samuel that there was great sin in the life of Israel's leadership and in its people. They had, the, the word of the Lord was rare in those days because, frankly, a lot of people didn't want to hear it. And in Leviticus 26, God said, if you break my covenant... Leviticus 26, 17, I will set my face against you and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you and you shall flee when none pursues you. A similar passage in Deuteronomy is even more direct. Deuteronomy 28, 25, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. So in one sense, Israel already had the answer to their why question. This defeat was from God, and it was his judgment on a people who, by and large, had turned from him. Not completely. Again, remember Elkanah, remember Hannah. But by and large, had turned from him, their leaders, corrupt and compromised. Now, here's where we've got to do some really, really careful thinking. Discernment, when we try to connect a passage like this to our lives, because when you read the Bible as a whole, suffering is not automatically a sign that you have sinned. Look at Job. We already mentioned 
uh, at Joseph. Look at Jesus. Suffering happens even to the, the godliest of people, the most faithful people. These are examples of people who suffered even though they were innocent. So whatever disappointment or grief or pain or loss that you have suffered, what you're feeling right now, it doesn't necessarily mean that you must have done something terribly wrong and now God is making you pay. That, that's not what it means. It, it grieves me to think, uh, we, we hear uh, how this is uh, a common thing. Uh, parents split up and the kids think, this is all my fault. Oh, that, that, doesn't your heart break to th- when, when, when people wrongly take the blame for something that they haven't done? And then you, you just add to the pain by beating yourself up. That's, that's, not, that's not good. But here's the thing. That's not what this passage is about. This passage has a different lesson for us. This passage warns us not to, in our losses, in our defeats, not to question God while ignoring our own sin. God, why did you do that? God, how did you let this happen? God, why did you let me go through this difficulty? In our losses, we should look to God, but also examine ourselves. Maybe you come away saying, you know what, I, I don't think I don't think I've gotten any unconfessed sin. I'm not harboring any sin against God. And God just helped me to suffer faithfully through this, to trust that um, you can work through innocent sufferers like Jesus. But we do need to examine ourselves to make sure we're not too quickly overlooking what needs to be dealt with, what God is trying to expose in your life. When disaster happens and we want to say, where's God? Know that God may be right there in your defeat precisely because we have been ignoring him and our own sin. So we're going to continue through the passage. We're going to see Israel look to God for help. That's good, but there's no recognition of their own sin. So pick up in verse 3 again. And when the people came to the camp after that first defeat, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting of the camp of the Hebrews mean? When they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistine, and just think, like, what, what do you expect happens next? Well, the Philistines fought. Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell and the ark of, the, of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. This is part two. Superficial religion. The one and only Savior will not rescue us without our repentance. In our story, the elders of Israel, the leaders of their clans and tribes come up with a new strategy for the, after that first defeat. Hey, 
I don't know, guys, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant here. That'll save us. Perhaps they were, um, some of them were, were, had very good intentions. Like, let's try to recreate some of the great triumphs of Joshua's day. Remember when the Ark of the Covenant led the people through the Jordan River into the Promised Land? Or remember when the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of all the people as we walked around the uh, city of Jericho, and then the last time, a shout, and the walls fell flat. What a victory that was. That was a victory. Let's get some of that mojo back. Now, maybe we should stop and explain a little bit more about the Ark of the Covenant, especially if your only familiarity comes from Harrison Ford movies. Now, actually, you could, you, you could actually learn a little something from the Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, because in that movie, just like this chapter, the Ark is treated like some kind of secret weapon of great power that's going to end up killing the Nazis or Philistines or whatever, the bad guys. That's not what the Ark was. Literally, it was a wooden chest overlaid with gold, a little less than four feet long, a little more than two feet wide and high, you know, not too much different than this table, shorter for sure. Um, It held the tablets of the Ten Commandments, which were essentially the terms of God's covenant with Israel, uh, plus some other artifacts of God's relationship with them, the manna that God provided for them in the wilderness, the the staff of Aaron that had had budded uh, as a sign of his uh, calling to be a priest, but, but that's only one part of what it meant for the Ark of the Covenant, to be the Ark of the Covenant, because the lid of that chest was described as the mercy seat where the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled uh, every year on the Day of Atonement. So that was how a holy God would be able to dwell with a sinful people. That too is part of the, their covenant relationship. And on that lid were two cherubim, these winged guardians of God's throne. The ark itself was not uh, thought of as God's throne. Um, David later calls it God's footstool. He's enthroned above the ark. So please just get right out of your head any kind of notion that, that the Lord lives inside the ark like some genie in a bottle. No, that's not it at all. No. And yet, while God's not in the box, in the ark, there's something about God's presence there at the ark, with the ark, above the ark. And so Israel, the Israelites believe, okay, if we can have the ark with us in the battle, then we've got God's presence. We've got God's presence, we've got God's power. And the power is sure to be on our side, right? Defeating the bad guys. So when it arrives in the camp, all the Israelites are excited. Woo! And all the Philistines are really afraid. Whoa! Woe to us. Like, we are doomed. We're doomed. We've heard about these plagues that God put on the people of Egypt. I mean, they get the story mixed up, of course. They're talking about gods, and they're talking about being uh, plagues in the wilderness. But they're confused on the story. But they understand this is a God to be reckoned with. And did you notice the, the wording here, both of, from the Israelites and the Philistines? The Israelites said, the ark will save us from the power of our enemies. The Philistines said, who will deliver us from the power of their gods? Who or what is going to save you? That's the issue here. We're gonna, we'll come back to that some more. But, so what did the Philistines do? I mean, they're, they're obviously afraid. Did they surrender? No. They rally the troops. Be men. Okay, okay, guys, be men and fight. 
I'd have to imagine that if you were a little Israelite boy or girl, and you're hearing this read to you as some bedtime story, you know, some decades or centuries later, you're, you're probably at that point snickering, right? Be men, like, like that's gonna. What, what can men do against God? See, that's that's where you expect this story is going. These guys don't have a chance against the Lord. And think of, you see, in spite of. Israel, the Israelites' supernatural secret weapon, they thought, in spite of the Philistines' very human weakness, the Philistines won. Israel got slaughtered, the second part of verse 10, and there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. The ark of God was captured the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas die. Wow, made that 4,000 earlier seem like hardly anything now. The ark is gone. Israel's God is apparently exposed as weak and worthless. And God's people are not saved. They're utterly defeated. But as we've already been saying, there's a lot more going on here than meets the eye. This defeat was the fulfillment of the prophecy given in chapter 2 when God said he would destroy the house of Eli, his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And think about it. If it wasn't for the elders' uh, half-baked idea, oh, hey, let's get the ark and bring it out, Hophni and Phinehas probably wouldn't be on the battlefield. Folks, this is not an impotent God. This is an omnipotent God. This is not a weak God. This is the sovereign Lord. Don't put him in a box. How do we expect to be saved? You know, from, from, from the enemies around us, from the, from the challenges that, that come against us. We, yes, we know we need the presence of God. True, that's true. But not if we're going to treat him like a good luck charm. Not if he's treated like some super powerful tool to get what I want. That's not it. Are, are you guilty of that sometimes? I, I know I am. I mean, it, when life is easy, God can be comfortably set aside or, you know, he's, he's there, but, you know, you know not, a, not a big deal. When life gets hard, then we're like, whoa, hey, quick, we need God. Uh, let's, we better get back to church or, you know, uh, let's pray really hard for a day or two. Those kinds of things are good. Coming back to God, seeking God, longing for His presence are good things if they are expressions of us coming to God on His terms, submitting to His authority, obeying His command, confessing our sin, and turning from it, trusting in Christ alone. See, it's, it's just as true back then as it is today. The one and only Savior will not rescue us without our repentance. He is the one and only Savior. He is the only one who can save us. Israelites knew that. The Philistines knew that. Like, this is the only one. He's, he's the almighty God. But so we, we better try harder. And it looks like, oh, well, we, I guess we've proved that God doesn't save. That's not what this story shows. That's not what this story shows. The one and only Savior will not rescue us without our repentance, our turning from sin. Repentance is not something, to, I always have to clarify this, it's not something that you have to do to, in order to qualify for salvation. 
And we're talking about repentance as turning from sin, turning from sin in order to turn to God, to turn to God in faith. It's repentance is realizing you can't receive Christ while still holding on to your sin. If you want to keep your sin, then you really don't want Jesus. If you want to keep your sin, you really don't want to be forgiven. You just want to avoid the consequences. Like, hey, can I get out of hell, but I'd, I'd like to keep on living like I do. Like that, that just doesn't compute. You really don't want a covenant relationship with God. If you're not willing to turn from your sin in order to trust Him alone for your salvation. Uh, a lot of Bible commentaries can be dry and dusty. That's, that's not the case with a, a scholar named Dale Ralph Davis, which I love to read. And he says on, on this part of the passage, he says, the text forces two important implications upon us. And he refers to the Lord in the Hebrew as Yahweh. Yahweh will, Yahweh will suffer shame, that is defeat. He's embarrassed. He's, he, there's no glory. He's, he's the loser in this story. Yahweh will suffer shame rather than allow you to carry on a false relationship with him. And Yahweh will allow you to be disappointed with him if it will awaken you to the sort of God he really is. He is the Lord Almighty. That's who he really is. He is not a power boost for your life. If you grab onto him like a good luck charm to help you get what you want, he will let your luck run out and you will end up with nothing. Oh, sure, he may look bad in the short run, but he, he's not going to let you treat him like that. He's God. That commentator said the Lord was willing to suffer shame on the battlefield. See the, the beautiful thing? What's more profound? That Jesus... The Son of God was willing to suffer shame on the cross rather than allow us to remain in our sin. Jesus suffered defeat so that we would not be slaughtered in judgment. Isn't that good news? Uh, uh, so the question is, are, are you ready to stop looking to God for good luck, for personal success, for victory, We need to give up your sin and and your superficial religion. Find the only one who can rescue you, and that is Jesus. If you want to know Jesus like that, we we love to. That's what we're about here, and we would love to help guide you into knowing Him that way. There's people that we have after the service that are just up here at the front and would love to talk with you, pray with you, help you find Jesus in that way. But we need to look at the last part of the text. The part where Eli dies, daughter-in-law dies, everything goes dark. But that should only drive us to want the opposite. This is part three. Supreme glory. God's absence is horrifying, but God with us is our everlasting glory. Oh, I want to get there, but we've got got to go through the nasty stuff first. So, Back in our text, everyone back home uh, was nervous, waiting for news from the battle. Verse 13, Eli's heart trembled for the ark of God. You just, like, did he not either have confidence in the Lord, or did did he know that, boy, this is a bad idea, I got a bad feeling about this. Uh, Was he too afraid of the people to try to stop them, or just unable to? Like, well, you were outvoted, Eli, we're taking the ark. I I don't know. But his heart trembles. 
for the ark. There, of course, there's no satellites to beam the news of the battle back home. They depended on the fastest communication technology that they had, a runner, a runner to go the, some 22 miles back from the battlefield to Shiloh. Eli's old and blind, couldn't see the message. The message was written all over the guy. His clothes are torn, dirt on his head. Uh, could only mean another defeat. And Eli doesn't know the message, though, until he hears the second shout in our story. You know, the first shout, Israel's army, the ark comes into to the camp, yeah, woo! And the second shout, though, is not a shout of hope. We're going to win. It's the city's cry of anguish. The ark is gone. All hope is lost. The irony is, is just gets thicker because it says Eli is heavy. Uh, remember the prophet back in chapter 2 said that he had fattened himself on the choicest parts of the offerings that people brought to the, to the tabernacle. So yeah, he's, he's a big guy and he, he falls hard. You know, the bigger they are, what that means, you know, he falls hard not only from his chair, but from his seat of authority. His regime comes to an end. And so the prophecy at the end of chapter 2 comes true. Uh, chapter 2, verse 34 said that the sign would be that God was behind. This, this was not a coincidence. This is not just the Philistines uh, getting the upper hand one day. Nope, nope. The sign that the Lord's judgment was falling would be that both sons would die on the same day. But I wonder if you appreciate the, the fact that this also, in some sense, fulfills Hannah's prayer at the beginning of chapter 2 as well. That those who are mighty would be brought low. That the, that the full would be begging for bread. And of course, maybe at that time we were thinking, yeah, Phil, God's going to sock it to the Philistines, the, the big shots, the tough guys. God's going to bring them down. Started with the Israelite priests. That's who came down first. And there's nothing more poignant than, than, than these last few verses. Let me read 19 to 22 again. Now, the, now his, Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about that time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. She named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Put, put all the pieces together. Here's a woman who has been cheated on by her husband. Remember Hophni and Phinehas? Sleeping with the women who served at the tabernacle. Her husband, the promiscuous priest, she's been cheated on for, for a brief moment, this now widow in the pain of grief, and, and just throw on that the pain of childbirth, probably some uh, premature, then a son born fatherless and soon motherless, instantly orphaned. And the name she gave him, Ichabod. In Hebrew, it means uh, kavod, kavod is glory, and ikavod, no glory. Or where is the glory? In the sense of, not like, where's the glory? Like, where's the glory? It's gone. It's gone. Now, you may know that the word for glory 
is the same, well, well, this word for glory, kavod, is literally heavy. It's the same word that described Eli. Eli was heavy, fat. God is heavy, as in weighty, as in having a certain gravity. And even though God is a spirit, it's not inappropriate for us to say he is massive. That's who God is. And when the gravitational center of Israel's solar system is gone, it is chaos. When, when the powerful presence of God is gone, there is shame, there is misery, there is hopelessness. Folks, God's absence is horrifying. And the, the, the ultimate example of that is hell. Yes, God is everywhere. Yes, but he is not with them. They do not see his face. They do not know his presence. They do not know his glory. They do not know his steadfast love that endures forever. That, the absence of God is horrifying. Or you, or you think about it this way, from, just from the text we looked at last week. Yeah, God is everywhere. Well, but the Lord was with Samuel in a mighty way so that none of his words fell to the ground. He was not with Eli, Hophni, or Phinehas. And while they enjoyed stolen food and illicit sex for a while, while they were doing ministry, God ended their little party because he is kavod. He is weighty. He is not to be taken lightly. He will be glorified. Where's the glory? Right there where he is. Now, this the glory is departed. This is the end of the chapter, but it's not the end of the story. We're going we're gonna to see, again, more take place in these next couple of weeks. We're going to see uh, more as you go through the Old Testament. It, frankly, there's other times where God's glory seems to it depart. It leaves. Uh, look at Ezekiel. But I, I can't do all that today. We're going ahead further to the happier part of the story, where the presence of God came to our world in the presence of Jesus Christ. You know this. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is, as the Gospel of Matthew points out, he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And, what, and he is God with us. You look at it back in Isaiah, look at it in, in, uh, in Matthew. It's both, when it's God with us, it's not just about his proximity. God is with us in order to save us, which is exactly what the whole issue is here in 1 Samuel 4. We need God with us in order to save us, but they got it all wrong. We need God with us, and God has come to be with us to save us in the person of Jesus. And Jesus is not he is not your good luck charm. That's not who he is. He is not there, he's not there for you to keep in your pocket so that you have, you know, better outcomes to your day. So that everything goes right and nothing goes wrong. That's just, that's not who he is. He is not God with us to make us rich or successful or popular or victorious when it comes to achieving the American dream or getting rich and famous, that's not what he's here for. So let's take what we see in 1 Samuel 4 and take this bleak picture 
and turn it into a, a bright and what I, I pray will be a compelling vision for us to say, we will seek God's presence, not for our success, but for his glory in our lives. That's what we want. Now, I'll close by going back to these recent stories of revival in, in Kentucky. People seeking God's presence and power in their lives. Is it just a, you know, just hype? Is it just uh, people that like, oh, I want this uh, uh, sweeping, uh, soaring religious experience? Or is it something more? And in, some, in, in some ways, only time will tell. You know, what, what's going to be the fruit of this? But I think this word from, uh, from Timothy Tennant, the president of Asbury Seminary, this, this was taking place on Asbury University, but they also have a seminary. And the, this, uh, their president, I think, is, is right on track when he said this. He said, this is the reason why both the university and the seminary have not canceled classes. It's not because we are in business-as-usual mode. Far from it. There is talk of little else in every chapel, in every classroom, in every hallway conversation, and I suspect in every home and apartment in the community. The desire is to mainstream renewal into the very fabric of our lives so that we are transformed right where we live and work and study. We all love mountaintop experiences, but we also know that it must be lived out in all the normal rhythms of life. We have to live into this desperation for God to do what we cannot do. We have to live into transformed relationships. We have to live into new patterns of life and worship. In short, we must embrace what it means to really live as Christians in the midst of a church culture. Notice he's focused on God's people, not the world right now. In the midst of a church culture which has largely domesticated the gospel beyond recognition. We will know that revival has truly come to us when we are truly changed to live more like him at work, at study, at worship, and at witness. This is the kind of presence and power of God that we need. Not that we couldn't stay here and linger here and pray, and if you want to do that, oh, praise God. Uh, but, but the call is also to be changed and go out and let the world see what God is doing in his people. So the question this morning, are, are we ready to stop playing with God like he's some kind of toy or some kind of tool? His absence is horrifying. His presence is powerful, and it is, should be our daily joy and our everlasting glory. May God do that among us, Kentucky, Illinois, in all around God's world. Let's pray that way. Pray with me.